Welcome to episode 276 with my guest, Tracy E. Uh, this episode is sponsored to you. <laughs> We're off to a bad start. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your spare... Sp- <laughs> oh, it's all included with your spare... <laughs> I retire. I retire. Let's let's start this one from the top. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code MENTAL to get 10% off your first purchase. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. A mental pod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. And go to the website. You can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the air. You can uh, browse the forum. Maybe uh, join the forum and post. A lot of people connecting there uh, that share similar issues uh, or just want somebody to reach out to in the in the middle of the night. Um, you can also read blogs and guest blogs. And you can uh, buy Mental Illness Happy Hour stuff at the website, uh, coffee mugs, T-shirts, and uh, and you can donate to the show uh, on the website as well. Uh, let's get to some surveys. These are struggle in a sentence surveys. Uh, this one is filled out by Greedy, and she writes about her depression. It's like having no limbs and you need to open the ketchup. That's a good one. Uh, Maddie writes about her anorexia. Hunger is beauty. About experiencing racial or cultural bias. If only I was a race, maybe I could feel like a human. Snapshot from her life. Should I kill myself or save the planet? That's a good one. That's that's a t-shirt. That is a t-shirt. Um, Amanda writes about her depression. Having anxiety... Oh, depression and anxiety. Having anxiety and depression is like taking amphetamines while your body is paralyzed. A frantic need to act, but no ability to do so. That is a great one. Uh, This is filled out by depressed enough to stand around blankly, but not enough to be Van Gogh. I think uh, she should reserve that that website. And so it would just be that name.com but you probably want to also get uh, .net just to make sure nobody squats. About her depression, moments of joy, feeling all the brighter because the rest of my life is a flat, monotone mess. About uh, her anorexia, hearing my mother's voice saying how pretty I look every time I skip a meal. About her OCD, sharpening my pencils until I form a blister and it pops and I'm in pain, but the euphoria as I put all my perfectly sharpened pencils in a perfectly straight line is so beautiful I almost don't notice as I push the pencils I broke out of sight. About living with an abuser, being scared of my father, being scared for my father. Thank you for those. Um... And this one is filled out by a woman who calls herself My PMDD Life. And a snapshot from her life, uh, she writes, I'm sitting at my desk, chatting with colleagues, 
participating in meetings and googling how to make it look like I died in my sleep. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Tracy E., who I have known for probably, what, two, three years? Three years, I'd say. Um, we met uh, in a support group, and uh, we've just kind of always uh, enjoyed each other's company. Yeah, you, I mean, you always laugh at my jokes. Yeah, <laughs> and whenever you share, um, I just always relate to it, and there's a um, there's a vulnerability and an honesty to your shares that, uh, that I really... I connect with where where would be a good place to start with your story do you want to talk about your childhood what it was like where you were raised uh, all that yeah sure stuff? it was uh Staten Island New York mm -hmm. and we had six kids in the home so you know I was my father still says to this day we never knew you were around because there was just you know I was number five out of six I'm lucky to be alive they say but uh yeah I just you know was a kind of person who was very quiet and there was a lot of drama going on in the house and there was a lot of fighting and chaos and I would just hide in this little closet and create this fantasy world. Italian-American family? Italian family. I come out for the cooking though. They had some good stuff. <laughs> there was a lot of food. And, I that's, come com out to and that's comfort, you know? That's, the, that's right. how you show love. You that, yell the other 23 hours a day and then uh, have some sausage. And that's when there was peace at the kitchen table. Really? There was no fighting at the kitchen table. There was a few fights here and there, but 90% of the time, everyone was happy at that dinner table. Has your uh, a slender person, has food ever been an issue for you to go into it for comfort? Have you ever struggled with? Yes, I have, and I'm glad you brought that up. I recently, if it's okay to say, joined a support group about food because yeah. I've been going through some financial stuff, and I noticed that I just kept eating the sugar, eating the sugar. And I was like, oh, my God, how's this going to stop? So I went to a support group for that. And I'm eight weeks as of July 1st. Oh, no, as of August 1st, I'll be eight weeks off refined sugar. Congratulations. That's got to be a, a really difficult thing, especially when your body starts to get trained to, to eat it. Uh, absolutely. But you're right, though, that the food is always comforting. And it was peaceful when you ate in my family. Yeah, I I hear people. I I don't necessarily hear people say that it was peaceful at the table, but the food was felt like a hug. Yeah, them. oh, absolutely. The food definitely felt like a hug. Definitely, but there was there was some fights. One time, I think the table almost flipped, but majority of the time it was silent. Did you guys call tomato sauce gravy? No, we, you know what? We're so yeah. against that. It's like sauce. It's sauce. Okay, not and gravy at all. Yeah, my wife's family called it gravy. You know. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> the first time we watched The Sopranos, she was laughing so hard because it was so dead on. It really was. I mean, when I would when I would go to her family's house for the holidays, the first thing her mom would always say is, "Go make Paula plate. <laughs> go make Paula plate." <laughs> <That> is- <laughs> It was like, that's love. I'm going to make you a plate, and it's going to be so loaded with everything. And, yeah. You know, it's it's you're bringing back memories here, because I recently had people over for Christmas, and the goal, my sister says, is you have to make them feel so full when they leave. And I had so much food out. That one girl, there was a lot of Jewish people there, but the mm-hmm. Jewish people love the two Jewish people, one Italian, go... Oh my God, I can't believe how much food I said. That's the goal, to make you feel, I mean, think of that, how it is in real life, to make them feel full mm-hmm. and to make them a plate when they left. The, the biggest crime would be somebody leaving your your house not ready to vomit. Ex- <laughs> exactly. And when they didn't eat something, because yeah. they didn't like the saw, you know, I'm not saying they didn't like it, but one girl just like pushed a few things aside. You get insulted. And I'm like, does she know how long I was slaving over this sauce? And I'm like, clearing out her dish. And I'm like, angry with her. I almost took a Christmas gift back. And, and could you could you see that that was you bringing your own shit to the, Can't to the table? Can't even see it. Couldn't see it at the time. Can you see it now? Can you believe just a little? Yeah. <laughs> just a little. But you you know what? You're right. It's, it's not even about yeah. her. It's my stuff. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's stuff that you don't like to eat, right? Exactly. So why why would you you just can't wrap your head around how would she not like Brajol? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know you know a lot about the Italians. No, yeah, how do you not like baked ziti? Yeah. And she didn't eat all of it. She ate some. But you know, you're right. You know, I I knew this uh couple. I know this couple who were huge cokeheads in the 70s. And they uh and they were Jewish and they would show up at the holidays at mom's and she would cook this huge thing and they would be coked out of their minds so they wouldn't they would just nibble and oh, wow. barely at that you can imagine how crazy that drove we uh, yeah their mom yeah we it's almost like you get insulted you know what yeah. i mean that if you don't eat anything so i got over it but so let's talk about like the the emotional life of you as a kid. You were you were quiet. You were kind of on the periphery. What was going on inside? What were your thoughts and feelings about yourself? What was? Did you have a fantasy life? I know you've shared about fantasy in the yeah in our support group. Yes, yes. Um, fantasy was it's almost like its own little drug, right? It, you know, or not it, even a little. I, it, I think it is one of the most powerful drugs on the planet. Absolutely, I'm glad that you said that. And what it was is. There were so many kids getting in trouble. I was the quiet one. I went into the fantasy world. And what it was is I felt like growing up in that home, I didn't have a voice. I was, I almost felt non-existent. They would complain about money. So I always felt it was my fault. Gee, if they had four kids instead of five. And I shouldn't be knowing about money at eight years old. And I shouldn't have to feel responsible for people at that age. I remember. Did you think that then? Or are you thinking that now? No, I I thought about it um, back then. Back then I did. That, and, that I shouldn't feel the burden of you guys struggling. Yeah, exactly. Today, I have an obsession with money sometimes. Did it? Was it relieving to you to know that it was inappropriate for your parents to complain about money in front of you? Or did, did it do nothing to ease your mind that this is their deal? It did nothing to ease my mind. 
So, so you knew that you, your parents were inappropriate, but you still felt the full wave, wave of guilt that I'm. Absolutely. And yeah. exactly. Like one time I got paid for a paper route and it was $20 a month and I gave the whole $20 to my father for Father's Day. Like I felt like they needed help. You know what I mean? And, you know, he took it, but he's like, to this day, he says, I still have that 20. You'd be surprised. But I felt responsible. I knew about things. One time my father, he worked in a store and got robbed and they took his money. And I remember just crying that he was in this unsafe place. And I remember my mother and the other siblings say, why are you crying? Like, I felt like I was the only one that had the real emotion. I said, daddy just got robbed gunpoint. How do you not? I didn't say that to them, but they looked at me like I was a sh- like crazy that I was crying that he got robbed. It's so uh, touching and sad at the same time, you know, when you when you hear about a kid who carries the pain of the parent that feels it's their job to be the be the caretaker. Yeah. And no wonder you escaped into into fantasy. What a load that was that oh. you that you put on your shoulders. What if and you know what it was the fantasy of the television. It was every celebrity from Henry Winkler to the New York Yankees that escape. And I would always get in trouble in school. Oh, she just dazes outside the window. Because I was in my fantasy. And what were your fantasies? To hook up with the Fonz? You know, definitely. Like, you, know, <laughs> you know what? Just to hang out with him. Because I was like, what, eight years old or seven? I forget. You know, I was definitely yeah. young. But definitely to hang out with him. To hang out with the New York Yankees. As I reached 13 or 14, I would fantasize about making out with celebrities. You know what I mean? The sexual stuff, I think, came later on in your 20s. You know, because my house was very like, you know, you weren't supposed to think about sex until you were married. So... You know, every room had a crucifix. Mm-hmm. What is it, uh, Carol Leifer's joke about about sex? Sex is uh, it's messy and disgusting uh, if if done right. It's messy. She's she's funny. No, you know what? It's right because I mean, she has this big picture of the blessed mother in the living room. I mean, huge. And I remember making out with a boyfriend in like you know in the eighties, yeah, being judged by Jesus. And I go take it down a notch the blessed mother's here and he just jumped up and he's like what lady what lady what are you talking about i'm out of (laughs) here did you guys have the plastic on the furniture you know you know my grandmother did you know i think we yes we did in the early 70s we did and then when the 80s when everyone had money (laughs) we took the plastic off we did sweet sweet it's like you're italian (laughs) you know everything my my neighborhood was uh uh irish and uh and italian it was yeah and because, I love, and that's all I date. Is like, gosh. <laughs> and the grandmas always. A lot of families broke the broke the the plastic cycle, but uh, some yeah. of them, some of them still had the the plastic on the uh, living room furniture. Yeah. Um, so you would uh, escape into fantasy. Did you find yourself longing to live with a different family, or for you to be a different person? Or both? Yeah, the family I never wanted to leave, even though as dysfunctional as it was, it was I didn't want to leave. But I really just probably always wanted to be another person. I wish I was prettier and, you know, and I had a learning disability growing up. So I was always a little... What was the learning disability? You know what it was? I just... The learning disability was... um, I like always needed tutors for math. I had a you know very hard time with comprehension when I read. So I was with the slower kids and I adjusted slower. So I was always... A level down and I said god I wish I was smarter you know what I mean so I had that I made it through school 
but it was always a little extra hard. I always had to have extra tutors. I just, especially with math, I always struggled with the math. It's funny, some of the most intelligent people I know struggled in school because it's a different kind of learning. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, it's weird because it just, I don't know, I can't, you know what I'm saying. No, I, listen, I could run my own business. I could stand up for myself. There's so many things I can do. But if you ask me to do algebra, I'll, you know, I'll fall apart. What does your business entail? Well, the business that I had when I started was, um, you know, producing comedy shows. Like if you want to okay. go on at Caroline's Comedy Club and film a nice, it was called a tape back then or a DVD, mm-hmm. you bring 15 to 20 people and we make money off of those people. And and we, we, we produce shows. I did comedy gigs on the side. And then we started these workshops where actors meet cast and directors. I've been kind of obsessed with Marlon Brando recently. I was reading his autobiography and then I watched um, a biography on him on the Biography Channel. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a guy that got everything that he wanted. He got, you know, slept with all these beautiful women, got all these great roles. And you can see that it just destroyed his mind because he was never told no and so his ego got so big that when people would say no he thought that they were truly enemies that had to be like you know attacked and he couldn't see that it was his own sickness that yeah. that yeah. the human it's like when it's the, the when ego it's the, the ego. ego it's the ego, the ego you know? his ego was gorging and, and when he couldn't get his way and he couldn't see. And, and I think that's what Robert Duvall said about him. They said, you know, he said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he got, he got spoiled. You know, if he hadn't have been so spoiled, he might have, um, he might have not yeah. had so much sadness and loneliness and emptiness in, uh, in yeah. his life. Yeah. There was no higher power there, I don't think. Mm-mm. No, because, you know, there's times where I can't get my way. And I can see myself getting a little, you know, a little agitated agitated, and like pissed off. And how come she's not doing it my way? And it takes me back to my support groups where I'm like, honey, they're not going to do it your way. And I had to learn that. And usually with men, I would usually get the guy. I would find a way to get the guy. And three years ago, which made me go into that support group, I couldn't get the guy. I couldn't manipulate a manipulator. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it. And I was like, how could I do everything for him? I got hair extensions. How could this guy (laughs) not want me? You know, and he just, he didn't want anybody. And I thought it was all about me. Took it way too personal. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know, I got that vanity thing going and I have to, you know, someone goes, you know, when you're looking at your abs, there's no God there. (laughs) (laughs) That's. Yeah, go ahead. Any any seminal moments from uh, childhood or adolescence before we get into the um, the relationship issues later in life? Yeah, you know what? I want to say that there was a lot of drama in my home, and there was a lot of dysfunction, but there really was a lot of love. There was so much love, and um, you know, my mother always had a hard time saying "I love you." And when she was sick and dying of cancer in 1994, it was probably, it was, the doctor said she had three months and exactly three months she died. I never thought that her death would be the best time I ever had with her in my life. And she looked at the nurse and she said, Tracy's the only one giving me permission to die. Mm. 
because the others hold on. They held on, and eventually they had to let go. I mean, she was getting thinner, and they had to let go, and that's when she left. Because I'm like, why, you know? And why isn't she letting go? But I, I have to say, there was love, and when that woman was dying, that family came together. People could have ran off and had a drink. They could have just disappeared. For a family that struggles with intimacy, they never left my mother's side. Were you there when she said that about you? Um, about Tracy's giving me, yeah. no, the nurse told me. What did What did you think or feel when you heard that? Um, I felt good because she said to me, I said, how am I going to get through your death and not be bitter? Because I know Italians could get bitter. She goes, you're going to have to go to church every day during your lunch hour at work and pray for me. And the first thing I said out of my mouth was, they have that? <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And then I had a therapist, who, who Italian therapist, say, she is going to die and she's not going to beat it this time. And when he said that to me, I wanted to kick his ass. And then I realized I was the only one getting out of denial because I was really ready to go there. And, the, and my sister looked at me one night. She goes, you were ready to go where? In denial about her. Because she beat it before, but this time it wasn't going to happen. It went I right see. to the stomach. And my sister goes, well, you're taking this really well. And it's because I had a higher power. She looked at me 20 years ago and said, let go and let God. And she had no 12-step program or any support system. But she was religious, you know. But she said, you're going to have to let go and let God on whatever he wants. And your ther therapist said that to you? Well, the therapist wasn't. Yeah, my mom said that. But the therapist said, this is your last Thanksgiving. I mean, he was rough. This is your last Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthday. I'm like, I got to pay this guy. So, <laughs> so, you know, he was rough with me. But I know in the long run, he did the best thing for so me. So your mom was comforting you about her own death. Exactly. I mean, I ran. She she was hiding it from me in the beginning, and I ran home, and I looked at her. She was making something on the stove, and I said, "I know you're dying." And she turned around. She hugged me. We walked over to that picture of the Blessed Mother, and she said, "We're gonna have to leave it to God, and you're gonna have to pray every day to make sure that you're not bitter." And it was the best journey I've ever had in my life. Best journey is watching it. You know, Frank Zappa's wife said, "Hey." It's one thing to share your life with someone, but to share their death with them is pretty amazing. So I had that. And because of her death, I became who I am today. It was probably one of the best things that had happened to me, too. Talk about that. Well, I was always a spoiled kid, but not that spoiled. We always had to work for our money. But no matter what time of the night I would come home, there would be a plate of food. She would do my laundry. She would take phone messages for me. She'd pay my bills. She did everything for me. So when I knew she was going to die, I'm like, oh, my God, I got to have to cook. I have to pay my bills. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was, I mean, when she died, I never thought I could be happy again, really. And when she died in 94, in 96, I moved to Manhattan to become a comedian. And I shared an apartment with three people on Sullivan Street in the village, right above the Fantastics. And I never was so happy. And I was like, wow, I never thought I could be happy again. If she didn't die, I would still be stuck in Staten Island, and I'd still be living with her, probably to this day. There's no way I could have made it to California if she didn't die. Because I was coddled, I was spoiled. But she, would, she was like Mother Teresa, but when it was time to pay rent, she was like the Tony Soprano, give me your money, give me your money. And if you were short, she would be like yelling at you. I said, Ma, you know, they're going to start taking taxes out of my job, so I'm going to have to lower you. She goes, you ain't lowering anybody. You were paying her rent at that point? At that point, I was going to 50 bucks. 50 bucks, yeah. I think, what, a week, a month? I mean, this woman wanted rent money. 
and she would count it in front of you with like a suspicious <laughs> look. I'm like, oh my god! I go, this one. She's got the cross behind us, and she's counting the money like she's in the mob. Well, how old were you at that point? Let's see. Um, oh, I was like 21. You know, yeah, the, yeah I was in my 20s. You know, but you know, she was like, hold it, hold it, back it, and count it again. <laughs> I went, oh my god! She, you know, but she, you always had to work. But when it came to food, laundry, and bills and phone messages <laughs> before I had an answer machine, she'd take care of everything. How? Uh, what were the other silver linings to to her dying? Um, let's see. Well, they say you become stronger. And what it was is when she was alive, I did the stand-up, but I'd do it twice a week. I'd have the boyfriends. And for some reason, after she died, I became like this really strong person i feel like paul if you could watch your mother die and and just go to like 50 pounds or whatever she was i feel like you could do anything like the things that i do sometimes amaze me just moving out here not knowing anybody you know putting up i did a one person show about her death that did very well out here that's why i moved out here but to do certain things that people go you're amazing how did you get like that and i was like I think you could do anything you want. When you could watch that, I think you can handle anything. Because that's the worst for you. I mean, I love my father and I will cry if he died. But there's something about a mother. There's something about a bond that you have in that belly with them. And she was always there for me. But I became this strong person. Describe moments in those three months any moments that stick out to you where you could feel yourself changing or experiencing some type of silver cloud or just some painful beauty? Well, I'm going to tell you something that was, it's a painful beauty. It's, it touches me every time I tell it, you know, the nurse would come in, hospice would come in and we go in and out and, and I was doing something where I was helping her, either tucking her in or cleaning her or whatever in the bed. And she pushed me away. And she said, I don't need you. And she got tough with me sometimes. And I remember I ran upstairs and I just cried. And uh, the nurse, somebody pulled me up. I think it was the nurse and said, your mother's so scared. That's why she did that. And I still was pissed. <laughs> and then the next day she goes, come here. She goes, I'm sorry I said that. I do need you. And I had, talk about not taking it personally, she she tried to hide her disease from us, you know what I mean? It was, that, it was a moment where I was like, I said, okay, mom, like that, you know. And there was a time where Christmas Day came, everyone went to church, and she's like, you're going to learn how to make a poached egg. And I was like, no, I'm not. And she went, yes, you are. And she had this anger, this face full of rage and anger, because she was a rageaholic. And she's pushing my hand to do it. And she was so rough with me. She was not in the hospital at that point. No, she, you know, everything was at the home. Oh, everything okay. was at the home. But December, you know, she died January 29th. So December, she was up. Towards January, she was kind of bedridden towards mid-January. So she took my hand and she pushed it into the pan. She said, you're going to learn. You're going to learn. And I was so frightened of her. And I, I didn't know what to do. But I was like, I knew she was always full of rage sometimes growing up in an alcoholic home. But it was, again, the fear of what am I going to do when, my, when I die? How is she going to learn? What is she going to do? It was all about her being scared. 
that my my baby's going to be alone in the wilderness without the tools to survive. Exactly. And I, you know what? I really think if she saw me now, and I know she sees me now, I mean, I've come a long way. I take care of myself. I pay the bills. I make sure things are in order. I'm responsible, you know, and I'm in these support groups, and I'm closer to a higher power. That's all she would want to hear. You're closer to a higher power. Good. You're closer to God. You know, she was all about the God and the Blessed Mother. <laughs> but that was one of the things that upset me, but I looked at it where it was coming from. And then she said, I hate that you do stand-up, but I have to accept it that it is hard to do, and I'm happy for you. She knew I needed to hear that before she went. She goes, you're going to have the most kids. I said, my luck. I know you're going to, I know you're dying, <laughs> but that's not going to happen. <laughs> You, you have no kids, right? I have no, no, no. Yeah. I have no kids. And I, my father goes, what could I say? It's not for everyone. Don't worry about it. I said, I'm not. But I love my nephews and children. It just wasn't for me. It wasn't in the cards. I feel the, I feel the same way. Oh, you don't? Yeah. No, no, no kids. But uh, I always enjoy the company of my nephews. And my best friend has four kids. And I, I, you know, I feel a closeness to them and enjoy seeing them grow up. But I never find myself going, oh, God, I wish I wish I had a son that I could go play baseball with or throw the throw the ball with or some other horrible cliche. Exactly. <laughs> wish I had a son I could go through cliches with. Yeah, no, exactly. That's how I feel, too. Love but, the nephews. But I don't doubt that it's beautiful and rewarding and all the other stuff that, that people say. But I do have to say, uh, you know, a lot of people fill the surveys out on the website, and there's a lot of parents that that are not crazy about being parents and feel overwhelmed and want to get in a car and leave and never come back. But they, they don't. I mean, thank God they don't. But No, I um, know. So um, any s- other snapshots from, uh, well, that would have been your early adult Yeah, life. that was it. But, but gr- so growing up, so the silver linings and, you know, like just, you know, like my father was so unavailable. But when he was there, Getting the pool ready. I mean, just great times and watching baseball games, the Met game. You know, the Met game in 1986, we had game six where they were down. And I remember sitting in the living room watching it alone. I said, I got to get my father up. He's got to walk me through game six. And I knock on the door and he comes downstairs and he's like, all right, all right, let's go. We need a wild pitch. And a wild pitch came. Like he just got me through that. And I was, and then when it was all over, he goes, I told you they were going to make it. You got to have faith. And I'll never forget that that was the best time I had with him. I needed him. He showed up. He was there. They won. And it was great. Are there any th- times that come to mind when, you're, when your dad wasn't there for you where you felt abandoned? And, yeah. You want to talk about some of those? Well, you know what it was? Yeah. I mean, he worked a lot. We were always, you know, things got a little better in the 80s, and then the 90s we all worked. But he just never, you know, he wasn't around. And um, there were times with the, you know, as I got older and I would do stand-up and couldn't get him to any of the shows. It was very difficult. He, um, when he would come home, he would read the paper and then fall asleep. So... You wanted that intimacy, and what did he do? He was a printer. He okay. worked as he were he, first. He owned a store, and then he was a printer. He come home, he eat dinner, he talked to my mother. They take a walk. They were very much into each other, and the kids, you know, we were a little not much left for them. Yeah, someone goes, yeah. I don't think they should have had kids. They're nice people, but I don't think they should have. They were very much into each other. They they really were, and 
you know, no money's more beautiful than your mother, stuff like that. But um, it's a hard relationship today, even at he's 80. It's very, very difficult. And I think, it, you know, my stepmother died and, and he does what he wants and he likes to look at women and, and do his thing. And I don't approve of his life, you know, so I try to just... What about it don't you approve of? Well, you know, he's um, he's got a girlfriend who's 75 and... You know, he's always looking at the neighbor across the street and flirting with her. And and I looked at him. I said, you're playing with fire. Like, I felt like my mother. <laughs> oh, leave me alone like that. And I said, you know, you're going to hurt your girlfriend. You need to stop. And it's just, I'm not doing nothing wrong. Can never, self-righteous, arrogant, smug, self-righteous, the whole thing. But he likes to look at women. You know, and he did it with my stepmother. He li- And she would feel hurt, my stepmother. Mm-hmm. And I would confront him on him. And he just wouldn't admit his faults. Did he do it when he was with your mom? Never. It's like the mother was the higher power or Mm. something higher. He worshipped her. But as much as he worshipped her, they both took each other's BS. He's like, your mother wants to pray now. I'd rather watch the football game. And then she'll say, your father wants to invite 10 people over for dinner. I go, why don't you say nothing? She goes, no, it's his thing. He likes to do it. So I saw sacrificing. Mm. But he worshipped her. Never did I see him look at anyone else. That's, that's, a, that's interesting because normally when you think of like a womanizer or somebody with a wandering eye, you think of it as that person always having that. And yeah, that's that's yeah, interesting. I never would see it and just they were always so affectionate. So what do you, do you remember, how do you remember feeling about your place in the world as a woman um well i suppose because it wasn't there uh, growing up you probably talk talk yeah. about that did you did you feel like oh i'm gonna get fair treatment out in the world from men because they're good guys like my my dad is i, I am sure it wasn't conscious but talk. No, no you know you're right you, well first of all i i do look for guys like my dad my dad was was very good looking so i always like the good looking guy and um, what it was is that I did like him growing up. So even though he wasn't there, I seemed to always attract the unavailable guy. And I would want someone like him. To this day, I still want someone like him. And he, Emotionally unavailable, you mean? I mean, I'm trying to stop that pattern today. Right. And it's so quick when I see it. But, you know, there was someone recently that was Italian, that was very good looking, totally emotionless, and it just had no emotion. I'm like, all right, I could deal with that, you know, narcissistic like my dad. I'm like, wow, this is this is a lot of work. He was 50, but he acted like he was 15. And the minute, you know, I would do the chasing, he wanted nothing. He didn't want anybody. And I'm like, oh, God, I had to not take a person. But he was my, someone goes, mm-hmm. it's almost like you're going after your father. And you're in your 40s? Yeah, but I look thirty-two. <laughs> <laughs> it might be in my fort. Like to this day, I mean, I definitely have grown to stop that pattern. Something recently came up where I couldn't get that guy, and you know, and he was really like my dad. Except my dad was a hard worker, and this guy was in and out of jobs. That was the only thing that was different. What is it about unavailable men that you think attracts you? Well. Because, emotionally unavailable because yeah. you want to be in their sphere right you want to be 
with them. You want to spend time with them, but there's something like catnip with them not wearing their emotions on their sleeves, right? Or being present yeah. and being into you and... and well, so, you know, you're right. Someone said the reason you like them so much is because you're unavailable. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I am not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't have to open up and tell them your story because they're not doing it. And it was very interesting because I never looked at it that way. And, um, yeah, so I basically would go after that because it was comfort- It was comforting. It's all I knew from the man that I loved the most in my family was my dad. I just would go towards what I know. And I'm like, okay, this one, I'm going to have to praise a little bit about his ego. I do that with my father because he was all very narcissistic, always about his looks, you know, and I just learned to adjust to that, but it was comforting to me. It was familiar. Was was your dad, he he worshipped your mom. Was there an emotional closeness or was there kind of an objectification of, of her that he was he emotionally available with her, or was she kind of um, something who he he prized her physically, but wasn't? No, I, I, they would because there were times where she would cry about things, and he was. It's interesting that you said that because when I think back, it's never like she came to me and said your father doesn't get it or he doesn't want to open up. She'd really because I think she had that religion or whatever. It's like together. They bonded and talked and did things. But when it came to the children, it's almost like they didn't know what to do. Wow, that's puzzling to me. That's exactly, so- because she never, compl- she worshiped. She goes, when your father honks the horn that he gets home, when he comes home, I still get excited. I get so wow. happy. And that was what if they, they were married 36 years before wow. she passed. And they just, you know, the, you know, and you would think that Tracy would see this family who would dance to Frank Sinatra in the kitchen after this perfect, you know, this couple that you would think I would just have something like that or want something like that. And I find myself picking because I got to take my part picking these guys that just weren't available. And when they say they're not available, I think I could change that. Maybe that's the allure. That's as yeah. this is a project. This is here's how I'm going to get to sharpen my skills of manipulation and working angles and yep. playing whatever role I need to play to get what I want cuz oh, it gives yeah. me a bit of a high. I is thought- any of that ringing any bells? <laughs> I thought I can change a 16-year veteran pot smoker. Could manipulate a manipulator. Give me some snapshots of you finding yourself being manipulative in in relationships. Give let's walk through a scrapbook of of Ooh. your your dating history. Oh, okay, now <laughs> to paint a picture for the for the listener I mean, and for me. You know, I mean, manipulating where, you know, you want them to believe, you know, I would, you know, what I'm really good at. Conscious or unconscious? Because I know we often, as addicts, we often manipulate without realizing. We just know what we want and we're so, we have our tools that we've used our whole lives. We don't even understand sometimes that it's manipulation. You know, my wife said to me one time, stop being so fucking passive aggressive. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, instead of just saying, I'd like to go you know, do such and such, you know, you would say, oh, I don't think I'm going to have time to go do this. And she's like, well, then just say what it is that you want to yeah, do yeah. instead of. Yeah. No, you're right. We're so yeah. afraid of having needs that we wind up yeah. dancing around shit and driving people crazy. But Well, you know, no, exactly. I mean, I would just, I have a way, I have a way 
of making them, putting them on a pedestal. I know exactly what I'm doing in this scenario. I build their ego up. And sometimes I'm not really full of shit. I'm like, oh, you saw this, you saw that. And they love it. Oh, they love it. And I usually get what I want with that. And pull, you know, you're this, you're that. And what is it that, that you want? Oh, oh, their attention, them to take me somewhere, or even, you know, sex. You know what I mean? Like, you know, just, or not, what could we do to not make them leave? And, you know, part of it was always boosting the ego. And they would come back for more. So that's first gear for you, huh? First gear. I knew exactly what I was doing. First gear. Give me some, some, some snapshots of things you would say or particular guys that you would, especially if it was something where... Could we get a little as, graphic here? I mean, you yeah, know, I yeah. mean, like somebody who had like, you know, a small penis, I would say, wow, you're, you know, you're so big. Would you really? <laughs> I, would, I would just be like, wow, what a... You know, what a beautiful, beautiful thing, and yeah. uh, it's so big, and it's my favorite. Oh, I love that line. That that line will get what, you. What did you think to yourself as the words came out of your mouth? Didn't think I was doing anything wrong. He's gonna stay after this. Oh God, who's listening to but this? You, but you couldn't. <laughs> but you couldn't see that it was it was coming from a place of manipulation. It was just. Is it you're so lost in his emotional needs that you don't? think about is this really coming from my heart where, where help me help me understand i think does, is this okay to say that was it about the ego or no you don't see any kind of like no there was no ego i mean like there was just something of just me getting what i want right and yeah having his emo you know touching him emotionally to hear that you know my friend's always like oh mention the penis you know and, to, <laughs> <laughs> and you're in you know and you're in and you know and Having saying that, I mean, some of them still call. You know what I mean? Like, but I don't take the calls. I mean, you yeah. know, but it was like, what is this guy calling? I was like, oh, I used to worship his penis and I would say it. And I knew that that would keep him around. And I had no problem doing it. And I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Today, when I look back, I was like, oh, I'm manipulating. Kind of genius, though, because I got to tell you, so many guys have anxiety. Uh, about it. it may not be conscious but on a certain level and I, and I know a lot of women have uh, self-consciousness and insecurity about about their their genitals uh, yeah too. he was but he was very insecure about it yeah he would say it so to make him feel better oh, I, I would see. say it's my favorite I don't think I really said it was that big I said oh it's a, you know it's would my- you go to the tote board and show them show him the numbers <laughs> <laughs> look you're number one you're above Frank and Jimmy <laughs> And, and then, then te- uh, and tell them that it's in inverse order of length. And that's why you're my favorite. I don't like to be threatened by a big dick. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. And I mean, and of course, that's what you say when you break up with them. Yeah. But by the way, it was in it was an inverse order. I knew I was the safest. Exactly. With you. And you know, I would convince them that I don't have a lot of sex, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. But he may, he thought he was hitting a virgin at the time. I convinced him, like you know, that I'm so holy, and you know, I mean. It, you know, I I didn't have a lot of sex back then, but I made it, I would make it look like I was like a holy roller. This is my this is my favorite penis, and I've never seen another penis before. <laughs> how do you how do you juggle that? This is my favorite of the few that I've. Well, you know what it was. I, I got to clear that up. Yeah. The favorite was after we broke up, and it was years later. Yeah. How is that favorite penis? It's the best. 
But back when I saw it for the first time. Say that Say that again. Who was saying what? Oh, I would say like, you know, in other words, when we broke up, you know, years later, you run into yeah. them, they call and you worship the penis. But back then, when I started going out with them, I would just say, oh, it's 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 great. It's, you know, I, you know, and he knew. Is, that it, is it eating its vegetables? Yeah. <laughs> checking in on it. <laughs> but I would just have a way of always complimenting their penis and they would always stay. What are some some other uh, ways that you would build them up or manipulate them, um, or or a, it's a physical or, or, thing like yeah, I, whatever, or or a specific one that was just specific to one guy, uh, either either one. I just wanted to kind of paint a picture of the the ways that you would cope with your what I would imagine was your fear of being alone, yeah, uh, or of oh, being yeah. or of being in a relationship and being smothered and having to be seen. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you said that because when they are too needy, the guy, I completely get turned off. And is it them being needy or is it you being afraid of intimacy? Because there's a, who knows? I recently met an actor and he was like, you know, he was kind of cute and I'm talking to him. He's like, how do you get a sad card? And I went, oh, another one I have to save. You know, like I just, I would have to do all the work. He wasn't there. He was struggling with music. And I said, I'm sick of taking care of people. And that was the first time really, I ever really was like, this isn't for me. I've been down this road before. I was really proud of myself. Not knocking this person what they do, but that's what I do. I meet the actor. I help them out. I, and he was and he was asking five hundred questions, and I'm like, I can't do this. It sounds like you make their needs your needs Absolutely. for the initial wave of survival to not Absolutely. have to be alone with yourself. Absolutely, yes. Um, and for our listeners, a SAG card is uh, that stands for Screen Actors Guild, and that's it's the acting union. Once you get your card, it means you're in the union, and then the work is better paying than the non-union work, and it can be difficult sometimes to yeah. to get your card. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, a lot of it was the looks, too. I had to make sure I looked a certain way and kept the body physique. And they were like, wow, wow. You know what I mean? So I would make sure that everything was perfect for them. What they wanted or how what you felt made you attractive? Would you just make yourself up? Would you find out what it was that they they liked and then try to work towards yeah, that yeah. no 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 if anything i always i always dress the way i wanted to or look the way i wanted to you know and they would just go along for the ride but they were like wow this looks great i mean one time i think i threatened to cut my hair and they got upset yeah. i mean there was little threats here and there but it was mostly just i i just if i think of manipulation it was mostly just boosting them up and and just finding a way to just to make them stay and just it was it was a lot of work. Well, you know that makes sense to me as as you know calling that manipulation, but making yourself attractive. How how is that? It was it was too much. I mean, I oh. really it, it came to a point where it was exhausting. I see. Is to look a certain way, and like I would always feel like you know the 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 washboard stomach. You know, having that for this guy, and one time he picked up a picture of me before the washboard stomach. He goes, "Wow, look at your thighs. They're so heavy." I was like. I can't go back to that. Exactly. Right. But, and this guy ended up being a fat, you know, a fat bastard. <laughs> <laughs> have you, um, you were, you were talking about having abused sugar. Uh, have you ever, um, dabbled in anorexia or bulimia? You know, Paul, um, no, but I will tell you something that's very 
confidential. Um, <laughs> this is maybe not <laughs> the best I mean, place to this is, you know, this is really like I had to go in for a colonoscopy last mm-hmm. year. I was injured. I wasn't working out. And I get uncomfortable when I don't work out. But I wanted to get a colonoscopy because there was some IBS issues. The doctor said, I don't think so. But I'm in my mid-40s. Let's get it over with. But I knew if I had it, I would lose four pounds right there from the... Uh, Enema. The, or the whole, yeah, the whole preparation. Body looked the best it ever looked. The uh, colonoscopy was great. It was easy. And then after that, there was still some laxatives in the cabinet. And when you're not working out, and you, and then Halloween hit. And from Halloween to Valentine's Day, I didn't stop with sugar. And I took those laxatives probably in November. And I started taking, and I said, wow, I'm like an addict. I'm a real addict. I said, and it was starting to hurt me. The laxatives would hurt me physically, and I just stopped. Yeah, to pull all that water out of your body that you that you need. That it's so, and it's draining all the vitamins and minerals. Are you were you getting exhausted? You know what? A little bit tired, but it hurt me physically from behind. I'm like, this is. I just finished off the thing. I wasn't running out getting it. I just finished it off. But I said, this is, you know, it was that injury and not working out and not thinking you're good enough. I think you're just cheap. <laughs> you wanted to get your value out of the, out of the I was like, let's get, well, yeah, you know, because I had to buy all this stuff for, uh, yeah. for this uh, colonoscopy. And uh, I'm glad I got it done. It all worked out. But in March of 2014, I checked myself into a support group for uh, people who eat a lot. And this was a sugar addiction. And I never thought I can give up sugar. Let's let's um, move back to the uh, intimacy yeah. struggles um, and the manipulating in relationships. Give me some other ways. You build them up. You compliment them yeah, on their their physique. You become obsessed about your um, appearance. Yeah. More obsessed than you would be if you were not in a relationship, yeah. correct? And I, yeah, and I would yeah. lie to them and say other oh, guys were interested. Oh, yeah. So yeah, they, tell I mean, me more about that. Yeah, that, that's a big character defects is is the lying. I mean, there was. A, I mean, the whole family when I grew up lied. My father's the biggest liar. He still lies about his age, and he's eighty, and he's like, I'm sixty nine, <laughs> out of all ages. But uh, <laughs> you know, I yeah. Oh, I would. Oh, I, yeah. I was a master liar where I'd be like, well, so and so said he'd take me out, and you don't take me out, and and really they would get very jealous, and you know, like. You know, people say... Even if it was the truth, that's manipulative, saying well, that exactly. Saying that to somebody. I mean, there was a guy in a building where I lived that I liked, and like I said, he didn't want anything, you know, he didn't want anybody. My friend's like, you've got to bring a guy over there, you got to make him jealous, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I said, you know, it's bad karma. I wouldn't want him doing it to me, and I left it alone, but if it was 10 years ago... There'd be a new guy every day that I would just, you know, come on in the pool. Just just talk to me in the pool. Just call me babe in the pool. <laughs> just call me babe. Like, I could set. I mean, there was a time where I was hanging out with a guy that was a neighbor's cousin. And the guy that I, like, passed in a car. And I go, kiss me now. <laughs> Don't look to the right. And I, it was, like, out of a movie. And I kissed him. And, of course, he looks at the guy driving away in the car. I said, why'd you have to look? He goes, you're something else. But I never had anyone over. It was just that one moment. I go, grab him, and I said, kiss me. He's coming with the car. That's why I enjoy your company so much. You know, you're, when you tell stories like this, it just, it just warms, it just warms my heart. It, it's oh, funny, and it's honest, 
And I just love having conversations where people can share unashamedly about moments where we are just being so fallible. You know what I mean? I mean, just so nakedly needy and scared. Give me some, give me, hit me with some good ones. Some, some needy and scared mo- um, moments from your, your past that you can, that you can needy think. And, yeah. Um, needy and scared. I, um, you know, I would hang on. I, I really had this fear and I still have this fear today, but I am alone and it's okay of, of being alone. I had this thing and I would just hold on tight and, 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 you know, they wouldn't have it. I mean, to think that I liked a guy that was in and out of work that said to me, if I want to be with you, what do I need to do? I said, I mentioned like five 12 step programs. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, every, mm-hmm. he just, I said, but the desperation being in Los Angeles, not knowing a lot of people, you know, in New York, I was the queen. I knew how to get a guy in New York, and it was easy. And most of them were from Long Island, and they would come in. But out here, it's tough. I have to work hard, and I became a little bit more desperate. I hate saying that, but I became a little bit more desperate. And I would put up with stuff, that neediness of putting up with stuff, that no job, the drinking, having a best friend who was in jail for rape. I go, you hang out with that guy? And yeah, he was in jail for 13 years and that's your friend that I can hear my mother's voice saying, tell me your friend, show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. I would put up with things and take it. Now, what's the matter with hanging out with a guy who's not working? Is it that he's not trying to find work? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because yeah, there's mean, a lot of unemployment now and I, I don't want people who for 20 don't, years don't have own- a don't have a job to feel like that that's a reflection of their moral character 20 years he's been on unemployment he he knows how to work the system yeah that's fucking bad yeah he knows how to work the system and there's potential there he's a good-looking guy i think his best years were behind him but oh i don't want to do this i don't want to do that i you know almost trying to help him get a job just trying to change him well there you go there you go trying to change him and um you enjoy a good project. It, <laughs> you enjoy tiny penis projects. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. That was great. Exactly. Small penis and no job. I'll bring it on. <laughs> yeah, but you know what it was? His mother supported him until she died. And he completely became anorexic with not anorexic, meaning like he didn't want to be bothered. Socially with anorexic. Yeah, socially yeah. anorexic, like a love avoidant. Yeah. Tells you to your face, you don't want someone like me. When someone tells you that, oh. run. But I went, all I saw was, oh, if you hang around a little bit longer, you'll love me. I'll change you like they do in the movies and you'll be at my feet. And I'll be, and I'll feel high because I'm different than all the other ones. I'm special. What a fucked up way we have of proving that we're special by trying to change people. Well, look, the guy with the small penis was a player. And all the girls wanted him in 1996. And guess who got him? Tracy. Until this day, I tell people, he was unavailable. Nobody, you know, he, everyone wanted him. But he picked me. And he was crazy about me. And then as soon as I said, you have a pot smoking problem, I was done. He didn't want to hear it. Nothing. So the changing that you had tried to do 
on him. Had you gotten to the changing stage yet? Was that the first thing of you trying to change him? Was it all building up, building him up? Yeah, he would hide. Yeah, he would hide it at first. I mean, he made what he does is he's he's a master at this. He will buy you gifts. He will take you out to the expensive places, and you will never hear of that pot. Very little do you hear about it. He may, he hooked you, so it would be hard to get out. And he was shocked that after seven weeks or something, I said, I. I can't do this. He called me at my job one time. He goes, yeah, I just got in. And it was 8 o'clock. And my friend goes, he's doing coke. He's doing coke if he just got in. <laughs> and, you know, people knocking on the door getting pot. And I'm like, this is not a good situation for me. But weren't you doing the same thing with him? Probably with another drug, right? Um, yeah, but, I mean, you you had a plan to hook him Absolute, in the beginning absolutely. by building him up. So it's like you were both, you were, yeah. you were both presenting, like, these glossy images of yourself Absolutely. to avoid having to show who you really were for fear of being rejected or or somebody wanting to know you too deeply exactly because i became another person when i went out with him right. i was you know he was always the fantasy guy he looked like brad pitt from legends of the fall today he looks like meatloaf <laughs> <laughs> keep smoking your pot and it i really was like wow i'm, I'm gonna get this guy i never did this poll I planned to get him. I worked out at the gym. I looked great. I knew I was going to see him at this party. And everything fell into place. So when the fantasy came oh, true. You must have been high as a kite. High as a kite, 1996. High as a kite. That when I was around him, I was nervous. And when the fantasy came true, I didn't know who to be. I didn't know how to act. He controlled everything. And then when I got out, he couldn't believe it. I said, I can't do this. Was it that you had kind of played all your cards to get to get him and there was no more, you had no more aces up your sleeve to wow him? Yeah. But he was already hooked at that point. And then you were faced with who he really was, which yeah, which and, was a guy that was... He, yeah, I'm sorry. He, uh, yeah, yeah. Who was unavailable and... He recently called and said, oh, you know, my girlfriend's good. She doesn't mind that I smoke pot. He goes, what are you doing tomorrow night? I mean, the guy, and I laughed. Today I could laugh. Back then I would cry. And I was like, wow, he's like a love, you know, and sex addict, you know, and he's going to, he, he just goes, has no morals, just will cheat and cheat and cheat. It, it doesn't think anything's wrong. Isn't it interesting how common that, that two phase thing in the beginning of a relationship is? is have this master plan to hook this person. Yeah. And then the next thing is to try to change that person. I really thought that I was so powerful enough to change this guy and to change him from not smoke and for him to stop smoking pot. I really believed I was that powerful. And at the end of the day, I couldn't manipulate a manipulator. Couldn't do it. And... This is why me and him lasted 11 years on and off. Because every mm. time he called, I'd say, he's going to change. He's not going to change. But that's what got me into support groups. Talk about, did you have a quote-unquote bottom that made you go get help? What, what, talk about that. Okay. Um, once in a while, he would spend money. We were broken up. And sometimes I'm embarrassed to say I was the other woman. You know, towards the end, I wasn't. And he would pay for these expensive trips, and I would go. And I remember one time I was uh, I was in Vegas, and he came. 
And it was the first time I really felt like a prostitute. Like, not there was no money, but the way he just left the next day, it was just so cold. And I remember sitting on the bathroom floor in this hotel in Vegas, and I went, you can't do this anymore. You, it was. I got so high from the two days I was with him, and then when he was gone and the way he left, I just remember sitting on that bathroom floor and saying, I can't do this anymore. Like the bubble popped. It did. It, 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 and I, I got into a, a support group. It definitely helped, but it still wasn't enough. How so? Well, it was a support group that was definitely dealing with, you can't change anybody. Mm-hmm. But that pain of why I would put up with this for 11 years and what's really going on inside, it definitely hit some things. But I knew I needed another support group I to see. hit that certain area about the love and the sex. And the intimacy. And into intimacy. The fear, of, the fear of intimacy. Exactly. And they're so closely related, you know, because if you think about it, it makes sense. Of course, we'd be control freaks. If you want to pull people in and then keep them at arm's length mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and change them Ugh. in the in the belief that, oh, I'll let them get closer if they can just be a different person. When in reality, intimacy is about letting them in, in who they are or saying this person is not healthy for me and yeah like like he tells me today he smokes pot i don't get mad tells me that he wants to see me and i laugh it's almost like an ex-husband <laughs> it's just like oh here he goes again you know when he says to me on the phone he goes i love you you know that and you know and it's fine i i, I don't i don't but it, that was a very painful thing for me that made me Real, the desperation of just hanging on to this guy because he looked a certain way. I mean, he sounds kind of shallow, but he was fun and he was loving to me. And he kind of boosted my ego up too. And, he, and it sounds like he didn't want to get too yeah. close to you on a, a certain love because he was emotionally unavailable or... You know what it was? I'll tell you a story. Around five years ago, I went to go visit him. This is before my new support program. And we didn't have sex. I just looked around his new place, this and that. And he was so mean to me. Because you weren't having sex with him? That's what I would think. Yeah. I was like, and I would just keep staying in the remarks and the nastiness. And I remember one friend goes, he's probably sitting there going, why does she like me? And then I ran to my therapist. I go, why does he hate me so much? And she said, he doesn't see you. So much self-hatred he had. He doesn't see you. And there was a moment where he saw one of my plays about my mother and he said, I am so sorry I put you through those 11 years. I said, no, I had my part too. But he goes, I just, he felt so bad. And then he ran out of the room. A pot smoker runs out of the room and comes back, and you're like, are you okay? He goes, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I said, no, you're having a feeling. He wanted to get rid of me out of that house so he could smoke something, you know, but he, when he saw the play and how emotional it was and what I went through with the journey of my mother, because he came two years later after my mother died, he apologized. Because he hadn't seen your pain all, all that time. He hadn't seen your growth. He hadn't seen you. He saw me in that play. And he, like I said, now he's kind of flirting. But I tell you, after he saw that play, he let me go for five years. And still in counting, he goes, I just feel like a a little shameful how I treated you. I was like, wow. 
So where are you at, where are you at today? Bring us up to speed on where you're at today. Well, today it's it's you know today I know today I can't change people, and I know that yeah I like the good looking guy, but I also like a guy that makes me laugh. Believe me, I've dated people that weren't so hot looking but made me laugh. Um, I got this dating plan, and I'm really I got to get out there more. I do isolate sometimes, and I'm trying to get out there. But I am going to be a little picky, Paul. I just. Like I said, I want to rescue. You, I wa- you mean emotionally picky? Yeah, I, not I mean physically picky. I, this is this. Uh, you know, look, I, I want to have companionship. I want to be with somebody, and I really, for the past year and a half, really looked at my behavior. I can't blame these guys. I gotta look at my part. I'm not gonna take all of my part, but I definitely have to look at my part. Why I chose these kind of guys? When they're funny, I'm instantly in love. I have to be very, very careful. Very careful, and. um it's different today. I, I'm hoping it's different. I haven't been around like this hot, unavailable guy that says, I, I don't think I would. Honestly, I don't think I would because I know that pain afterwards. I know when someone just wants to hook up. Those days are over. It's not the 90s anymore. You know, I think today I'm really being serious about really working this the right way and meeting someone that's good for me. And, but, and not picking because they got a great car, they look really good, and I never really went for the money. Like, there's a guy right now that likes me in New Jersey. You know, it's New Jersey. <laughs> and we used to date years ago, and now Just because it's so far away. Exactly. It's not that New Jersey's yeah, I mean, a shitty am I gonna, state. Yeah, and I, am I going to leave California to be with a guy who has a kid? I mean, I don't mind the kid, but he's not really pursuing me. And I said, hey, stay in touch, because I had to help him with something. And he needed help with, you'd be proud of me. He was he needed help to, wanted to visit out here with his kid. For I said, sure, here's my travel agent's number. I'm not, I don't even know where to go. And I'm, my friend goes, I'm so glad you didn't take care of him. But he, I sent him a text. I said, stay in touch. Because we did it one time over the phone. He goes, you call me. I said, I'm not calling you. I said, you can call me. Huh? I haven't heard from I haven't heard from him, but... I do like them, but I put it out there. You know, as you as you describe that stuff, um, I'm struck by how much more self-esteem that version of Tracy has than the person from 10 years ago that that she's not going to settle for crumbs and she's not going to try to change people. And I said, no, I'm not calling you. Come on. I've done the work since 2004. I've been in these support groups I've done the work. I'm not perfect. I'm not going to do it perfectly. But, you know, there is more self-esteem there. And I'm not, the manipulation and the lying, I mean, I pray every day to have that removed. Because I do not want to lie. I don't want to do that. Because the, the best thing for recovery is that you have to be honest with yourself. And that's and, the hardest thing to do. It really is. It really is. That yet, you know, even tonight, you know, there was things I didn't want to say, and I said them. It's okay. And because you were going to keep that that part private, you weren't going to. Well, the laxatives, and you know, yeah. and about how I manipulate. I'm a little shameful of how I manipulated and lied, but you know what? That's what brings me and the listeners the most comfort, though, is when I hear people sure. share those things that are hard to share because it's like, oh, okay, you know, maybe my secrets aren't that that bad. Although I've shared. Ninety nine point nine percent of mine on this on this show. 
And uh, there's some times where afterwards I'm like, when I upload an episode, I'm like, what the fuck have I done? <laughs> and then I'm like, you know, yeah, someday I'm going to be dead and it's not going to matter. Better. And yeah. and what are we really doing? We is, just want to connect to people anyway. Yeah, you know what I mean? We just, maybe we can help someone. Who knows? Yeah. You know what I mean? But the food's under control as to, just for today. I'm not looking to change anybody. Um, You're not accepting crumbs in a relationship? Yeah, like just that guy. Can you help me get my second? Can you help me do this? Can you help me do that? And I just went, oh, God. You know, can I just get someone a nine-to-five job? <laughs> but I just was... <laughs> You know, I but I immediately backed off from that. I'm like, I can't, you know? And I just hope, I really just hope I don't go to that other end where I'm trying to take care of them and oh, they're so hot. I don't I don't think I would do that. You know, as you as you talk about that, you know, I think again of all so many of the things that you've shared about tonight um fall into a gray area. And you know, that's where we struggle as as people with compulsive yeah. behavior or addictive behaviors. You know, you we can say be of service to other people but you know sharing about that guy wanting to get his sad card that's not being of service that's trying to change him so that you can have a guy who really you deserve more than in a relationship and i think if if we're not honest with ourselves, we go oh this is me being a great person Dating this guy and trying to get his life in order. But you get into a support group and they'll, close friends that you begin to make will tell you the truth and say, hey, you know, I, I wouldn't call that, you know, a noble act of kindness. That, that, that is starting to get into manipulation. Yeah. And And they can look on the surface. Well, one of the things you. So similar. I remember one time you said to me, and it always stuck with me is if I got the guy, if you got, if I got that certain person, everything would be, my life would be perfect. And I really thought if I had that neighbor, everything, if I just got him, God, I remember praying, God, if I just had him, that's all I want, everything's going to be fine. And it's so not true. And to this day, I don't really talk to him. He doesn't have the power anymore. And he's not nice to me. (laughs) Hmm. slams doors doesn't want to talk to me and i went and i always wave and say hello but i'm like wow i'm not bothering with him i'm not boosting his ego yeah if you're out there and you're listening and you there's somebody you're pining over that you think is going to change your life and fill that emptiness inside you go talk to someone because that that's a sign of um uh a wound or sickness or something that's super super common not trying to shame you at at all but it's something that is not talked about in our society at all the way love is portrayed in the media is so fucking unhealthy oh my god true love is you know about compromising on where you're going to dinner you know um it's about it's a hard thing it's about the hard unsexy things that's that's where intimacy really begins. Absolutely. Um, um, no, you, you, you're right. And, you know, I had something on my mind I wanted to say. But, no, basically, if you think you could... Um, be just fulfilled a, by... Yeah, by a person. It's just it's that fantasy. And, and I never got him. I dodged a bullet. 
there was a moment where he's like, okay, let's, let's have sex. And I went, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I said, I'm not in a committed relationship with you. People still to this day don't believe I said that. <laughs> Your fantasy guy since 2009, you said no to? I said, wow. I said, honey, I, I had to. I said, because I know that pain the next day when he blows me off. Wow. I said, I'm not going to go through that pain. I said, I have to get the U-Haul truck and get out. And you, is it fair to say you would have never had that kind of strength and insight on your own had you not gone, gone to a support group? Is I would have done it if I didn't have that support group. I would have mm -hmm. definitely slept with him. I didn't sleep with him because that program taught me about the awareness of that pain we go through. Hearing people's stories, telling suicidal pain of, of not having what you want right after the one night stand. I heard somebody say uh, recently that they were, you know, withdrawing from a, a relationship, you know, with somebody who was unavailable, and they they said, "This is I've had food poisoning, and this is more painful than food poisoning." Wow, and food poisoning is painful. Oh yeah, it, yeah, that's brutal. No, I wanted to say what I thought about now is the biggest thing I'm against is when people get out of a long relationship, they hop into something else right away. You have to mourn that relationship because that's the only way you're going to learn and grow. And I've seen it on reality shows where I went, oh, look what she's doing. And I have a friend that's getting out of an 18-year marriage, October of 2013, and said, gee, it still hurts. I said, well, it, what is it, six months? I said, honey, it's 18 years. It's going to take time. I don't think she's dating anyone, but you have to mourn that relationship. You have to learn. Because I was the girl back in the 90s who would just go from guy to guy and not learn anything. I just kept picking the same guy. Because if you don't resolve that issue, you're going to pick someone else just like that. And that pain that you're trying to avoid by not being alone is just going to grow inside you. You're going to have to look at it someday. Oh, absolutely. You so, I, yeah, when I said no to him, I knew that pain. That support system said, oh, you're not going to go through that pain. He goes, I feel so rejected. I said, oh, gee, welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to touch on before we... Uh... Um. You know what? No, I. Um, this was so good. I never thought I was going to go th that deep, and I'm glad that I did. I feel good. Good. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you're a great know. interviewer. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And that was so uncomfortable for me to 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 take and not deflect and yeah. not make a joke about Listen. growth. I just like talking about stuff that I feel like is hasn't been talked about in a way that is detailed and nuanced mm -hmm. and um and especially if there's shame attached to it oh yeah i heard oh, somebody yeah. say something on shame um a, a person in a in a support group um said shame needs three things it's like a petri dish it needs three things to to grow it needs secrets it needs judgment and it needs silence wow i was like wow that's, oh, that's pretty, pretty powerful that's pretty powerful yeah Tracy E. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks, Trace. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Tracy. Um, before I take it out with uh, some surveys, I want to tell you guys about our sponsor. This uh, episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or maybe an online store, well, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Um, I went ahead and created one so uh, that I could see uh, what it was like to use Squarespace, and it is super simple. You can check out uh, the website I created. I put um, 
dog pictures that I've taken and uh, music that I've done. And it's paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. And it took me about two hours to put all of this stuff together. Super simple, drag and drop. They have a shitload of uh, beautiful templates, uh, really professional looking templates. Um, so you don't have to design anything. You don't have to sit and rack your brain about, well, what am I going to make it look like? And how am I going to make it look like it all goes together? It's They, they take care of all that stuff for you. Um, yet there's also flexibility to design it to to have your own touch. It's a, It's really a nice... Uh, a nice blend of uh, simplicity and control. Uh, they have great customer support. It's 24-7. Um, what, what more do you want to need to know? You want to know about the free custom domain? Squarespace uh, makes adding a domain to your site uh, super simple. If you sign up for a year, you'll receive a custom domain uh, for free for a year. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. So uh, go check it out. Uh, it's... Uh, you can start your free trial uh, today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code MENTAL and you will get uh, 10% off your first purchase. Um, so yeah, go check out that free trial and uh, check out Squarespace. It's a great product. Squarespace, set your website apart. Um, before I read some surveys, I also want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to uh, support this show. We uh, we could really use some financial some financial support. Um, it uh, You can go to the website, mentalpod.com, and you can make a one-time PayPal donation, or you can become a recurring monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month, which is great because it, it helps me uh, know that, that there's going to be some money in the future. One-time donations are certainly great, and if that's, you know, you're more comfortable doing it that way, that's awesome. But um, Monthly donors helps me understand, you know, um, what the what the future is uh, is going to look like month month to month. I'm already hating myself right now for this. I feel like I'm coming across as desperate and not articulating what it is that I'm trying to say. But just uh, please help, please help. That's uh, so you can go to the website, make uh, make those donations if you feel like it. You can use our Amazon search. Uh, tool and then Amazon will give us a percentage of uh, the sale but it doesn't cost you any money they they're the ones that give it and um, and you can help us non-financially go give a nice rating at iTunes uh, write something nice about it or spread the word about the podcast through social media that would be uh, all of those things are greatly appreciated and if you don't want to do any of those things I totally understand too because uh, you know it's not like I'm out there uh, I think maybe twice I've supported public radio and uh, I listen to it all the time. Why? Because I'm a terrible person and so are you. All right, rocking the Quad Cities. This next one from Bachman Turner Overdrive is called Herbert's Butthole. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Aja and... Uh, she shares uh, a snapshot from her life. Her her uh, issues are depression and anxiety. And snapshot from her life, she writes, staring blankly at a computer screen at my job that is supposed to be my dream job and being completely paralyzed to do anything at all and worrying that I'll never be able to pursue my passions because of a total lack of energy and drive. I think a lot of people are nodding their heads to that one. Thank you for that. 
Gnarly Fries writes about her anxiety. I am but one moment, one word, one step, or one thought away from royally fucking my entire life up. That is a great one. About her bulimia, this is just another little snack. Just another, just another, just another. I will be better tomorrow. I will be perfect tomorrow. I will not be hungry tomorrow. About her perfectionism, Life is a brand new blank coloring book. Here we go. That's it. Stay inside the lines. Your crayon strokes are beautiful. What the fuck? What did you do? You colored a millimeter outside of the fucking lines. You fucked it all up. Rip the page out. Fuck. You ripped the perforation. Burn the book, you dumbass. Throw away your crayons. Throw the table across the room. Never tell anyone. Seriously, consider ending your life. That was like a little poem. Thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment, but really this sentence in it, to me, is more awful and fantastic than the rest of the awfulsome moment. So I'm just going to read this, um, and it's from Tearful Tacos, and she, I just love this sentence. My mom, grandma, and I were very close and shared a whimsical, twisted sense of humor as survivors of sexual violence, physical and emotional abuse, and estrangement from almost all other family members who had yet to overdose. <laughs> that, that is like the greatest opening paragraph uh, a sentence a book could ever have. Thank you for that. Jet writes about her depression. Depression is feeling perpetually homesick in your own city. That's a great one. I think we had one kind of similar to that uh, last week. So what I'm saying, uh, Jet, is that I cast you to hell. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself 100% organic, veganic, stereotypical white girl bulimic sod. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she doesn't uh, uh, elaborate. Uh, she has been physically and emotionally abused. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Of course, if you love them, it drives the abuse under the skin deep enough that you'll tear yourself apart to get it out. Darkest thoughts. Some days, the only thing that keeps me from driving into oncoming traffic is inconveniencing the Mack truck that it would take to kill me. Some weeks, I'll sit in classes that I love and fantasize about taking scissors and opening up my forearm vertically wrist to elbow. Stepping off curbs to cross the street, I check for oncoming cars, and part of that is in the hope that there is some. Darkest Secrets. I am an, an annoying paragon of virtuously, virtuously healthy eating. I don't eat bread or sugar or processed carbs or meat or cheese or anything fun. I live on unicorn farts and spinach. I work out two hours every day. I am the first to tell another person they're beautiful and that they do not need to change a thing and rage against the media and eating disorder. But some months, in the privacy of the bathroom with the shower on and the radio blaring, I will stick my fingers down my throat and bring up anything that I feel is unvirtuous, even if it's too much fucking spinach. What a waste of water. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The ones that end with my throat slit, and I don't know why. Sex and death and violence. It doesn't turn me on, but they play through my mind more than any other fantasy or nightmare in my repertoire. 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone? Mom, I am a strong, self-made, independent, intelligent success story like you want to believe. It is in spite of what you put me through, not because. But I don't want to hurt you, despite the fact that your decisions have scarred and scared me. Have you shared these things with others? I'll joke to my closest friends that I'm a stereotypical white girl complete with daddy issues and an eating disorder. I don't share if I can't be flippant. I'm not sure if they actually understand the admission. Self-deprecation for life. How do you feel after writing these things down? Okay. Weird. Not okay. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? The usual trope, it gets better, etc. Fuck that. Recovery is a bitch. A tough fucking cunt. Not just in how you'd think, in the grand struggle of relinquishing your self-loathing, but the day-to-day usurping of the habits and rituals that killed you slowly and kept you safe. That is a great survey. And I really, really hope for you that you can get to a point or find a friend where you don't have to be flippant with. That can be really life-changing. And um, it's a it's a it's a prison to to not have um, moments of sincerity and vulnerability. Those are those are really kind of that. That's kind of like getting to walk the yard, as they say in uh, in prison. You know, their time out to stretch their legs. Uh, this is filled out by possibly Allie. And uh, she's a teenager and she writes about her anxiety. Like if my red face doesn't give it away, maybe my constant apologizing will. That's a good one. Uh, Self-Stifled writes about um, his anxiety. He gives his snapshot. I was so scared of social interaction with people during my time at university that I would often eat my meals alone in the safety of my car. I didn't realize just how pathetic it was until my parents, who had been shopping around town, located my car at my campus and visited me as I was reading in the car while eating lunch. When they came by and saw me as I was, a loner locked away in his car, I felt embarrassed and abnormal. I couldn't help but feel they judged me. After we talked a bit, they left and I totally lost it. I sobbed, and there was little energy left for anything else. The shame of that moment still lingers to this day. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, any suggestions to make the podcast better? Um, I'd love to see Brene Brown as a guest. <laughs> so would I. I've been trying. To, I've been trying to get here, but she's a very busy person. But uh, if you guys are on Twitter, tweet to her. Tweet to her. Um, maybe that. Maybe we can. Get her to, to come on next time she's in L.A. Um, and that's another reason I wish we had a bigger budget for the show because uh, some of these guests that are too busy to come here, um, then I could fly uh, to go see them. And all of them would be in Hawaii. This was filled out by Tinkerbell. And she writes uh, about her depression, anxiety, and anorexia. Uh, snapshot from her life is waking up struggling to get up I drag myself to the kitchen have some coffee put on my makeup and get in my car I cry on my way to work when I get there I retouch my makeup put on a big smile and do my job P.S. I'm a therapist and while I instill hope in others I am completely hopeless it is amazing how hard it can be for us to deal with our own issues, but how we can be there and have such clarity on other people's issues. 
Um, and thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Sending you some love. This is uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself procrastinating my life away and uh, about his anxiety. I can't even leave the lecture hall to go to the toilet for fear of any attention I'll get. Just thinking about it makes the cramps worse. About uh, having sexual bias, he writes, objectifying all men and reducing everyone to fuckable or unfuckable. I think a lot of people relate to that one. Thank you for that. Moon Man writes about uh, uh, a snapshot from his life. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of struggles: depression, ADD, anxiety, uh, drug addiction, bulimia, anorexia. Oh no, no to bulimia and anorexia, um, and sex addiction. And uh, snapshot from his life: uh, When I was five, I ran up and hugged my dad. When he got home from work, he asked me, "What the fuck are you doing?" It is my first memory of him. Oh, that is heartbreaking. Oh, dude. Sending you some love. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself broken together. And uh, her issue is PTSD and a snapshot from her life. She writes, I rarely talk about any of what happened when I was a kid because it was pretty unspeakably dark. On the rare occasions that I do make any reference to my childhood, I speak only in the most detached and vague way possible uh, about it so as to avoid evoking an emotional reaction from anyone. For example, uh, my mother is unstable. Sounds so much more benign than my mother walked in on me being molested as a toddler and acted like it was my fault. That is my earliest memory. That's probably why I felt too ashamed to talk to anyone about the recurring rape nightmares that I was having in kindergarten. Oh my God. I felt like I was a creep for having them. I was five and I felt like I was the creep in a situation. I could never stand to watch that sink in on another person's face. I can't put that image of such a small, helpless child in such a horrifying scene in their head. I can't stand the thought of giving that darkness to another person and having them see uh, see that when they look at me. Too intimate, too painful, too much. Just thinking of making someone cry for me makes me feel sick. So instead I walk around emotionally flat and keeping all these dark secrets and, the, and only having superficial relationships because I can't stomach the alternative. I'm afraid I will never be able to. I can't even make my adult self feel for my younger self. When I think back on what happened, I always feel like I do it with this news journalist level of detachment. I can describe so much physical, sexual, and emotional abuse like I'm describing the weather, even if it's in my own head just thinking back, and always when talking to another person, like my therapist or something. I literally cannot conjure any feeling but guilt for saying something fucked up and ugly to another person. And I'm sure your therapist has told you this, but I just want to stress how common that is for somebody to feel that way uh, about that. I've felt that way about things that happened to me. And I think that's the numb suit that we put on when we were kids so that we could, so that we could be kids. And, um, I really, really encourage you. You know, I encourage you to think of this weight that you're afraid of putting on other people. Think of yourself as being on a hike with other people and you've got a 90-pound backpack and 
they want, these people who are your friends, want to help share some of the load. It gives them a chance to be your friend, to be a better person. And you're denying somebody the opportunity to have a richer life when you don't open up to them. Because we're so full of self-hatred, especially those of us who've, who've experienced childhood sexual trauma. We're so filled with shame that we can't imagine anybody else would want to help with that weight. Um, so I hope you you can get there. You don't have to be that way forever if you don't want to. There is a path out of that darkness and that heaviness. And, and you can begin to feel again. This uh, is an awful moment filled out by Dill Pickle, who writes, At lunch, my grandpa forgot that my dad has Parkinson's and kept asking him if he had been drinking since my dad's tremors were making eating difficult. Meanwhile, my dad has never had a drink, and my grandpa was on his third scotch for lunch. <laughs> awesome. Uh, ben writes about his depression. Kind of okay is the best I can feel. Oh, I think that hits home for a lot of us. About his anxiety, free time makes me want to cry. About his anorexia, uh, although he's recovered, he writes, why do I have all these internal organs? They make my belly look big. Uh, about sexual bias, he writes, is having submissive gay sex a lazy cop-out? It's very difficult to mess up being fucked. Doing the fucking may result in disappointing people. Snapshot from his life. He writes, this isn't really a snapshot it has, as it has been repeating since I was a child. It's two months before my exams. I've already been studying for since the year began. I try a practice question and completely blank on the answer. Why are you so stupid? Why can't you remember anything? No one else works this hard and that's because they are all smarter than you. You're not smart. Soon everyone will see how dumb you are. Just kill yourself. I want to cut out the bad parts of my brain. I want to cut off all my fat. I want to stab and rip and shred myself until there is just blood everywhere. So I grab a sharp pencil and repeatedly jab it into my thigh until my brain stops racing. That is heavy. That is heavy. Thank you for sharing that, Ben. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Poppy Seed. She is uh, straight in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional, oh, I'm sorry, pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, she's never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, the first time my grandmother told me I was piggy and fat was when I was seven. Happily playing with my dolls, one day she suddenly felt the need to intrude on my natural state of joy by telling me this. She's dead now. This continued until adulthood when she would inform me that I was too fat and unattractive. Uh, I was very lucky to survive in a bad car accident. When my grandmother came to the hospital, she said, well, at least you'll lose weight. Jesus Christ. My older sister used to take me clothes shopping and shame me when things didn't fit properly. One of the sadder memories I have from around the age of 11 was the stinging sentence she uttered as we once left a store. It's fine in the winter because you can cover up your body, but what on earth will you do in the summer? What did I do? Well, it took me till I was 29 before I could wear a sleeveless top in public. That's what I did. 
I used to comfort my mother as she sat crying on her bed because she hated her body so much. The message was clear in my home. The women starved and suffered. The men were distant and scary. What a wonderful foundation. The inevitable eating disorders and or disordered eating, of course, followed in my own life. My ability to have relationships has been greatly affected by all this internalized shame, and for a long time, I felt a certain amount of sexual disgust when it came to my own body and pleasure, and still struggle today. I find intimacy and connection so, so hard. I'm sociable, funny, and good at pretending, and this only adds to the loneliness. Um, No positive experiences with her abusers. Darkest thoughts. I have thought about how I would rather someone just died rather than me having to deal with conflict or face them. I've secretly wished they would get run down by a car because I was too frightened to face them. I don't want to die, but I think about suicide sometimes when I feel at my absolute bleakest and certain that I can't change. I become obsessed with emotionally unavailable men, sometimes for years at a time. I wake up and think and fantasize about them almost every day. It soothes me and takes me away from my own reality. I uh, would recommend checking out that book. I think it's called Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. Um, if you're listening. Darkest secrets. I lied to everyone about when I lost my virginity in a hope to fit in. I've never had a proper relationship, and I lie to cover this up when people ask. I went without sex for four years at one point. The more I isolate myself and retreat into fantasy, the harder it becomes to connect in real life. There's a guy at the moment that I had a fling with about a year ago. He told me that he doesn't want a relationship with me. I turn up at places where I think he might be. I sometimes engineer situations that will put us in the same room. I only want to sleep with him and no one else. I would just like to sleep with him one more time, but I'm too ashamed to ask directly and not confident enough to initiate, so I hope that by just being around him, we'll fall into bed together, which is how the fling began. Pretty pathetic. I'm thinking of joining a 12-step program for codependents or love addicts. Curiously, I sometimes feel better than everyone. I really encourage you to check out that um, that group for love addicts. I think I think you will find a lot of a lot of um, camaraderie, love, comfort, and healing there. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I obsess over one person at a time, and it's very powerful and feels very real. Even though I'm straight, I sometimes watch lesbian porn. I think maybe because it's gentler and less aggressive than hetero porn. Sharing this, I feel like I'm going to get caught. I feel paranoid, stupid, and ashamed. You sh- that That is, uh, you have no reason, no reason to feel that way. But I understand, God, we, we, you were shamed so much in your childhood. Why wouldn't you feel shame about any emotion, any feeling that is the least bit powerful? Why wouldn't it go negative? Um... What, if anything, would you like to say to someone? I wish I could have told people that I were in love with, uh, that I were in love with them but was too scared. And looking back, it could have been that I was in love with the idea of them, question mark. I wish I could tell people what I really want and when something isn't okay. What, if anything, do you wish for? That I can become a powerful, mature woman who can say no and set boundaries. That I can love and be loved, enjoy my body and pleasure without guilt or anxiety. I hope that one day I have a family of my own 
my own and that I find my voice and create work that I'm proud of. I would love to be able to go on vacation with some someone. I would love to stop feeling everything so deeply and so intensely all day long. It's exhausting. I bet it is. It says Paul as if he's never, <laughs> never, never felt anything deeply negative. Um, have you shared these things with others? I have a wonderful therapist and she knows. I also have a best friend who knows. That's awesome. How do you feel after writing these things down? Horrible. Uh, I am considering deleting it all. Well, I'm glad you didn't because this was a great survey. And um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, uh, the only way out is through. High five. Heartily agree. Any suggestions to make the podcast better? Perhaps on the website you could categorize the interviews by theme and particular mental health issue. Um, Unfortunately, we can't do it that way, but what you can do is you can enter a keyword in the search box and then any blog or episode description will come up. So if you typed in love addiction or codependence or something like that, um, that, that helps. Kim. Uh, who suffers with uh, depression, anxiety, uh, bulimia, anorexia, and being a sex crime victim gives us a snapshot from her life. I've never opened up to anyone about my struggles. I think this is why so many more continue to pile up. I've been with my boyfriend for nine years now. He's so loving and wonderful and puts up with my moods. I think he understands I have a hard time, but I don't think he truly understands why or the extent of it. Some days I wish I could just explain everything to him, but I know I can't. It physically won't come out of my mouth. It's like he doesn't know me at all. I can't just come to him and tell him I've been hiding all this from him, our whole relationship. It's too late. I've already built up the wall. I know things are getting worse now because I recently had a friend who committed suicide by jumping off a bridge. Sometimes I have thoughts of being jealous of her escape or fantasize about how freeing it must have felt to jump. It's a scary thought, I guess, and while I know I wouldn't act on it, it's just scary to think how these thoughts happen and no one ever knows. Uh, I want to emphasize it is not too late to share this with your boyfriend. And there's, if you've been together for nine years, there's probably a really good chance, too, that he's afraid of intimacy, that he's afraid of revealing himself and you guys have a nice unwritten little agreement between the two of you that nobody shares too much and things won't get too intense and nobody will have to uh experience awkward conversations that's just a that's just a hunch that i have and i think you should if you hear this episode uh rewind it to me reading this and um and share this stuff with him play this for him Um, or find your survey and print it out and hand it to him and say, please read this. This is me because you deserve to be known. You deserve to be felt. You deserve to be heard. And there is nothing wrong with you. Everybody experiences pain. The things that you are experiencing just happen to be the particular hand that you are dealt, but none of it is a reflection on who you are as a person any more than somebody having freckles is a reflection of their character. This is a happy moment filled out by Anne. And uh, 
and writes, two years ago I told my parents that I was sexually abused while growing up in their house by my cousin and it happened for six years. My parents were devastated. Once we left the therapy session that I invited them to, no one mentioned it again for almost a year. I was filled with rage that I finally trusted them and they ignored it. A year later my dad called to tell me that he had confronted my cousin over the phone and told him he's never welcome at their house or holidays again. It was the first time I felt truly seen by either of them in my 25 years. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Any suggestions to make the podcast better? Use the creepy DJ voice for any time you ask for money. Fuck everyone who hates on that bit. It's funny. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Drowning in Thoughts and a snapshot from his life. Now, his issues are depression, ADD, anxiety, alcoholism, OCD, um, and anger. Uh, now, I guess he doesn't. He doesn't. He's not an alcoholic. Um, anyway, snapshot from his life. My wife is exhausted, stressed, and depressed constantly because of her job, but she has such a deep admiration for her boss that she won't leave. I feel like I'm near the bottom of her list of priorities these days, but if I express my feelings about this, she instantly goes into martyr mode, questions whether we should stay married, and makes me feel like garbage for being unhappy with our current situation. I love her more than life itself, but it just hurts so much every day when she prioritizes doing extra work tasks at home, cleaning the house, spoiling our dogs, watching mindless TV, etc., overspending quality time with me, and I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. I think she wants to divorce me, but is trying to make me be the one to initiate the process so that she can be the victim and make me the bad guy. Wow, that's pretty fucking insightful. And, um, buddy, nothing is going to change until something changes in, in terms of how you deal with her. Until you set boundaries or some type of boilerplate of needs that you expect in your relationship, it's just going to stay this stinky mess. And um, doesn't sound like anything is going to change on on her end. So, um, you know, when is enough going to be enough? When is enough going to be enough? But hang in there. Tense uh, writes about experiencing uh, racial or cultural bias. Being a mixed race girl feels like walking a tightrope. And with an apathetic audience, but without a safety net underneath. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? For the new listeners, how did talk of Herbert's butthole start, and is he okay? I don't remember how it started. I do remember there was a moment in the episode that clocked in at like three hours where um, I wanted to, we, we were just a few minutes short of three hours and I decided that I wanted to try to stretch it to three hours and I didn't know what to talk about. So I just started talking about Herbert's butthole. So that, that might've been the one, but, um, Herbert has a wonderful butthole and, um, it's the talk of the town. I don't mind saying, and I hope I don't come across as boastful, but he is my dog. I'm not responsible for his butthole, but I do keep it trimmed. Um, I do show it off to company. I uh, We do have special lighting in our living room that highlights it. <laughs> highlights its color and ridges. That is so disgusting. 
this is an article I wanted to read. I'm actually just going to read some parts of it. Um, this was f- uh, forwarded to me by um, a really, really great listener and supporter of the show uh, named Shoshana. And um, her friend, Catherine Savini, wrote this. And uh, Catherine is a... Uh, She's an associate professor of English at Westfield State University and the director of the university's Reading and Writing Center. And the title of the article, and I will put a link to this on our website, uh, the title of the article is, um, it's about college professors, and it's, Are You Being Rigorous or Just Intolerant? How to Promote Mental Health in the College Classroom. And... uh, As I said, I'm just going to read some excerpts from this. If a student is late, we might assume he doesn't respect our time, and every time he is late, our judgment is confirmed. But if we gather more data, we might discover that the latecomer has OCD and struggles to get out of the house. Of course, the student could just be inconsiderate or a slacker, but we don't know unless we seek out more information. I decided to take the information-seeking route. Um, she had described earlier that she has uh, some students that have their earbuds in while she's lecturing. Uh, so I came up to one, one of the students, so tell me about the earbuds, I asked one day, and the story of this 18-year-old's struggles emerged. He had been in multiple car accidents. He is on pain medication but has trouble sleeping and staying focused. The background noise of the music helps him to concentrate. People with ADHD confirm this. They need something in the background to crystallize their attention on the foreground. Uh, She also had a student who uh, walked out mid-class. As for the student who walked out mid-class, I invited her to my office where I learned that she had left because of a panic attack. After a short conversation, I was satisfied that she had the necessary mental health support, but when I asked about her other courses, she told me she was at risk of failing due to excessive absences. Easy solution, I said. Communicate with these professors. But that was not an easy solution. The last time she divulged to an instructor that she suffered from anxiety, the instructor's response was, yes, we all have anxiety. In the student's words, this teacher, quote, shut me down. According to data from the 2013 National College Health Assessment, nearly half of of 123,078 respondents from 53 colleges and universities across the country felt overwhelming anxiety over the previous year, and a third had problems functioning because of depression. While some students arrive with diagnoses and legal accommodations, many begin experiencing mental health problems during college. The average age of onset of depression and anxiety is 18 to 24. Whether these conditions are permanent or temporary, they are usually accompanied by learning challenges, such as impaired memory and decreased ability to focus and make connections, inhibited curiosity, diminished creativity, and limited flexibility. To be clear, I have known students with psychiatric conditions who perform the role of the good students, but for others, conforming to that script can be impossible at times. It's tempting to say we should leave mental health to the experts. I've said that myself, but now I recognize that asking students to leave their mental health issues at the door is not only unreasonable, it's unjust. It's akin to asking students to leave their race or gender at the door. Of course, we should direct students to the experts when they are in crisis, but there's much we can do without positioning ourselves as therapists or saviors. The work of promoting mental health shouldn't always be outsourced to the counseling center. It must be part of the fabric of our institutions, including our classrooms. Too often, when faculty discuss students with mental health condition, 
conditions, the conversation ends in the same place. Either we establish rigorous standards or we coddle students, but that is a false binary. How then do we uphold our standards while creating an equitable learning environment? We can do so through small but meaningful acts like these. Mention in class campus events that promote, promote mental health. Bring in speakers from organizations like Active Minds, a nonprofit that seeks to raise mental health awareness among students. Distribute counseling center information in class, including what to do if a roommate acts depressed. Include a statement about mental health on your syllabus. Check in with students who have missed multiple classes. Survey students at the beginning of a course to gather information about their learning challenges and concerns about the course. Check in throughout the semester with anonymous exit writing. Uh, likewise, we can also change the culture of the classroom by rethinking how we teach and how we, re- how we structure assignments. Try scaffolding a major paper assignment. That means having students do the work in phases, write a project proposal, and hand in annotated bibliographies before the actual paper. It's a good way to reduce student stress about a major assignment and improve their performance. Assign a text about mental health. Assign ungraded in-class writing that asks students to think through problems related to course content and to assess what they do and don't understand. Cut back on the time you spend lecturing and integrate more group work into your courses to create community. Finally, when students are in crisis, walk them over to the counseling center or dial the phone to make an appointment for them on the spot. Uh, In a 2011 survey conducted by the National Alliance on Mental Illness, stigma was identified as the number one barrier to students seeking counseling. Discussing mental health in the classroom reduces that stigma and encourages students to to provide us with more data. The student who left in the middle of my class told me she felt comfortable talking about her personal struggles with me because in my class, we had read an article about mental health. She is smart and hardworking, but she was at risk of failing due to excessive absences. During our 15-minute conference, I gave her my computer to email her other professors and spell out the problem. She needed a nudge to trust that this was her best shot at succeeding at college. Outside of the classroom, even something as simple as organizing a panel where faculty and staff members discuss how they manage their psychiatric conditions can be helpful. Such an event had a profound effect on one of my students who had been diagnosed with depression in high school. Hearing the stories of these successful professors and staffers in her first semester, she said, made her think, I can do this. I'm going to make it. That is one important article. And the world needs more teachers like you, Catherine. That is awesome. This is an awful moment filled out by the original Musketeer. And she writes, I was watching my daughter play at an indoor playground when I noticed she ran off with, without her baby doll. I instinctively yelled to her and said, don't forget your baby. You don't want to abandon her. I then turned to my dad and whispered, because that runs in the family. <laughs> uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by... A woman who calls herself uh, invisible. Hold on one second. She is in her 30s, straight, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She was uh, the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, I was abused when I was around five to seven years old. It was by a family member. I could never tell as it would have forced me out of my family. 
Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, darkest thoughts, I have struggled with hearing voices for a long time. I went through rehab, hospitalizations, and years of therapy and treatment with medications. It made a lot of difference. I wasn't tortured with the voices all the time anymore, but not before I lost my job and my marriage. This has left me not being able to afford insurance, which in turn makes having treatment or medications impossible. Now the voices are coming back. I can feel them creep up on me and hear them whisper in my ear. Now I have no place to turn. I have tried every avenue to find someone who can help. It all costs money. Money I do not have. Now I feel that I have to succumb to the voices. I have no choice. I can't do anything to get rid of them. I don't know what it's like to be in your position, but I I have heard of people um, going to the website of the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company and uh, contacting them through that uh, because they do have programs for people that don't have the money for the meds where they either give them uh, for free or at a very, very low cost. And uh, another alternative you might try is Googling low-fee therapy uh, and the name of your town or city. And you might also try calling 211 and find out what resources are in your area. Um, So please don't give up. Please don't give up. Um, keep talking about it to anybody that that can help. Um, I think you will be able to find somebody. It might not be easy, but please don't give up. This is uh, from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out by uh, Finally 40 and Fabulous. And she writes... Um, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? Actually, I love my freckles, eye color, teeth, lips, hands, and feet. I like my face in general, but I do grow hairs on my chin and upper lip, which I hate. I like my stomach for carrying my two babies, but I also dislike it because it is flabby and has stretch marks, which I had before babies. At least I have an excuse now. I like my legs because they are fairly thin and strong, and my husband loves my inner thigh jiggle. I both like and dislike my butt. I hate it's too, I hate I think it's too small for my body, but I'm glad it's not huge and wobbly. I like my breasts for feeding my babies, but I hate that they are different sizes and keep me from feeling sexy. I like that my skin has become thinner and softer as I've aged. I like my vagina now, but used to be ashamed of it because one of my inner labia is longer and sometimes kind of hangs out. And one Last, totally new one, I love my butthole, Herbert Herbert just sat up. My husband was trimming my pubic hair the other day in broad daylight, an act which, although I like and also appreciate, is extremely intimate, and I feel totally nervous and vulnerable every time. Well, he asked me to lift my knees up so he could go further back, and he said, wow, your butthole is so beautiful. This was such an unbelievable concept to me that I made him take a picture and show me, and he was right. It was truly amazing. I had my hand over my vagina, so the picture was just of my fingertips and butthole, and I'm not kidding. It was beautiful. It actually gave me a giddy feeling, which stuck with me all day. I guess what I would like others to take from this is that if you look hard enough or let someone else, I know you can find something beautiful about your body. Just because you don't like a few things doesn't mean you have to hate the rest. Think outside the box. Maybe you have nice fingernails or eyelashes or nostrils or elbows. These are small things and can get lost in the sea of I'm fat, but it's a start. That is awesome. Thank you for that. 
This is from the uh, Young Male Abused by Older Female survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Rawwind, R-O-L-W-N-D. And um, choose any of the following that apply. And she chose, I'm a female who fantasizes about sexual situations with a much younger male. I'm a female who seduced a much younger male. I'm a female who molested a much younger male. And I'm a female who raped a much younger male. Um... And then she writes, I was sexually active and needed something apart from normal sex. Um, She writes that she believes that it was normal. Um, No feelings come up for her recalling it. And she doesn't feel any uh, damage was done. Uh, And she's never been sexually abused and she was raised in a stable and safe environment. I don't know if this is... um, if somebody was just screwing around or if this is a real survey, but um, it really bothered me. It really bothered me that somebody would think that that is normal. Um, so I don't, I don't know. And there's a difference between normal and common. I guess the normal in, uh, in terms of healthy. I use the word normal, uh, meaning that. But anyway, uh, This guy calls himself Fuck Me With a Chainsaw. He's a teenager, and about his depression, he writes, I somehow manage to feel like I sleep all the time and at the same time never sleep at all. Thank you for that. And remember to sharpen those blades on that chainsaw. There's nothing worse than fucking yourself with a dull chainsaw. Um, This is an email that I got from Rachel, and she writes... I work in the mental health field, and one thing I think that is not talked about enough is the fact that there are a lot of shitty therapists out there. I love that your show gives people hope and makes them feel less alone, and yet I also think it's important for people to know that if they're feeling like something is off in the therapy, that they should trust what they are feeling and explore it. I can't even begin to tell you how many terrible things I have heard from friends, other mental health professionals, and clients about their experiences with therapists. I, too, have suffered at the hands of a few bad therapists. In fact, once, when I was the client terminating with my own therapist after over a year of solid work, his parting words for me were, well, you've been nice to look at for the past year. Jesus Christ. Which obviously undermined and undid all of our work together. This was a very well-respected therapist in my area, and being a therapist myself, I thought that I could choose one wisely. It's so hard to find a good one. Another time, I remarked that I wished I'd had more women friends who were like me, mid-30s, single, and not wanting children. My therapist's response was that most women my age are focused on finding a male and procreating, and that I must be jealous of my friends who are married with children. If you don't know, that kind of thing will really piss a woman off. What year does he think this is? My best friend stopped going to couples counseling when her therapist remarked about her cheating husband. But how do you stay mad at him when he's so cute? What the fuck? Therapists are people too. I get that. We all make mistakes. Forgivable forgivable mistakes and sometimes unforgivable ones. But when therapists get lazy and forget that it's a fucking honor and privilege to work with people in the way that they do and clients leave more defeated than when they came in, it might be time to get a new therapist. I want people suffering to know that they should be in charge of their treatment and shouldn't have to listen to sexist ass hats who that won't honor their experiences and individuality. Amen. Thank you for that, Rachel. 
There's a little part of me that is always so afraid to read um, negative therapy or support group experiences because I'm so afraid in my head that there's somebody out there listening who is on the verge of turning their life around, reaching out for help, and that that will turn them off. And um, But that's that's up to the universe. That's not up to me. So stop trying to control everything, Paul. This is... Uh, I want to read one more of these. I'm sorry, I'm taking so long with this. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read. Um, I just my my voice was starting to get uh, tired. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Ducky, and um, she is straight in her twenties, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, was uh, the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. My stepdad molested me when I was three. My mom found out and wasn't going to report it, but she told her family who did report it. For a big part of my life, we never talked about it or acknowledged it. I did bring it up to him once, and he accused me of using it as an excuse to hate him. Uh, he and I didn't get along very well for obvious reasons. Since then, he has apologized for it in what I believe was a sincere manner. More recently, he has been complaining that as a sex offender, he is limited in where he can move and travel. He complained to me specifically. The whole time, I was sitting there thinking that he was trying to turn himself into a victim to the person he molested. That's what it sounds like to me. That is that is an awfulsome moment. That is an awfulsome moment. Sweet mother of God, complaining about your mobility as a registered sex offender to the person you molested. Now we remember why I put this put this one in the stack. That is, oh my God. Uh, she's also been emotionally abused. Uh, my stepdad is very volatile and has a short temper. He has screamed at me before for being selfish, ungrateful, hateful, prideful, and any other negative thing you can think of. While I don't think this was necessarily emotional abuse, <laughs> you don't think that was emotional abuse? Uh, but my mom told me as a teen that she had been pregnant before me and had gotten an abortion with full support from her fiancé. Uh, the father and parents. When she got pregnant again with me, her fiance, my biological father, and her parents, my grandparents, once again encouraged her to have another abortion. She decided not to. I have never met my biological father, but it feels strange to know that there's someone out there who fought for you not to be born. Any positive experiences? with your abusers. My stepdad has been my dad for my entire life. My mom and he met when I was three months old and we were married and were married a month before I turned two. He walked me down the aisle at my wedding. I love him, but have a lot of mixed emotions about him. I have forgiven him for the past, but he doesn't seem to understand that it can still affect me. I wonder, is he in any type of recovery for his, uh, his issues? Uh, darkest thoughts. Suicide, mostly. I have daydreams of thrusting a large kitchen knife into my arm as hard as I can whenever I have any negative thoughts. I haven't told my husband because I don't want him to worry. Darkest secrets. 
I had a nightmare that I tell people I remember vividly as my first clear memory. I was running out of a dark doorway down a hall and a shadow followed me, walking slowly. My dream self knew that no matter how fast I ran, the shadow would catch up to me. This was shortly after my sexual abuse, which very few people knew about. Uh, She has no sexual fantasies. What if anything do you wish for? I wish my parents could understand that my depression is not something that will go away if I pray hard enough. I wish they would understand that I'm not just being lazy or, quote, feeling down. I have a medical condition that is just as valid as diabetes or cancer. Uh, If you share these things with others, I have tried to explain these things to my parents, but they insist I am depressed because I am not spiritual enough. We have had several arguments over me taking medication. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? A little sad, a little relieved, and still ashamed. You have nothing to be ashamed about. You are a force. You look at the emotional poverty that you grew up in, and and you are, while you obviously certain have certainly have issues and and struggles like we all do, you are still. You are still living. I mean, that stepdad, I'm sure he has some good qualities, but Jesus Christ, that's one of the most fucked up things I've ever heard anybody anybody say. And then you throw in them telling you that you need to pray your depression away. Oh, my God. Uh, I seriously hope that you are not letting them talk you out of uh, taking medication if that's what you need because uh, you know I like what somebody says um, when people in support groups say oh if you're taking uh, psych meds you know you're not sober Uh, somebody has a great response to that they they come up to them after the meeting and they say "Um, where did you go to medical school (laughs) and that's what you should say to your parents when they when they say that you know, don't even talk to them about it. Just do it. Just do it. You deserve. You deserve help. And your parents, I'm sure, are well-meaning, but they're ignorant. And your stepdad's a dick. This is a happy moment filled out by Stormy Monday. And she writes, uh, I love it when someone compliments me on something I got at a thrift store. It's like this shirt is a reject, just like me, but together we are cool. That's awesome. Um, This is an awful moment filled out by Danny, are you okay? I could have read it, Danny, are you okay? But I know it's Danny, are you okay? Uh, She writes, in working summer school, awful in itself, my friend, who I found out had lung cancer just a few days prior, he and I decided to do some cleaning in the book room, he or she, I can't remember, um, in the book room of the third floor of our building because it looked like shit and we were done with kids for the day. I just wanted to spend some time with him and do something to take his mind off his diagnosis. We loaded overhead projector carts with books and took several trips in the untrusted elevator to the recycling dumpster. After dumping several loads of books in that fashion, we decided we needed something bigger to carry the books in, so we borrowed the custodian's disgusting trash bin that stunk to high heaven on a dolly and filled it up with books and headed back to the unreliable elevator. As our luck would have it, the elevator stopped, and there we were, stuck with the absolute worst smell. 
Neither of us had our cell phones on us. I started to panic, but then my friend, who's pretty reserved, started uh, started uh, bursting out laughing that it would be our luck to be stuck in the summer in the elevator with a filthy-ass trash barrel. While most of our coworkers were off enjoying summer and we were cleaning their mess, his laughter became contagious and I started to laugh too. The awful part is that after having three kids, my bladder really can't handle too much laughter and I had to pee. I told him to stop because I'm going to pee, at which point he started to laugh harder, which of course made me laugh harder and I pissed myself. Right there, in that shitty elevator that wasn't moving with the trash barrel my friend with cancer, and with my pissed pants. <laughs> Thank you. Those are like Christmas. Those are like Christmas. And then finally, um, this is an email that I got uh, from a woman who is recovering. Uh, she's in her early 20s, and she's recovering uh, from anorexia and bulimia. And um, she writes... She calls this beneath the surface of her skin. She writes, on the outside, and her name is uh, Jill. On the outside, you see a girl. You see a girl enjoying life, succeeding, achieving, smiling, laughing, joking, singing, and dancing. But what you don't see is that on the inside, this same girl is fighting. This girl is fighting to push away the painful memories of her past, the sadness, the guilt, the loneliness, the anxiety, the pain, the urges to binge, the urges to purge, and the intense need to numb, to numb it all. This girl is fighting. This girl is fighting to keep up, to keep up with her work and her responsibilities, despite the overwhelming thoughts in her mind moving a thousand miles a minute to keep up with her peers, despite the never-ending internal battle that no one else can see and to keep up with the dreams and goals she once had, despite the hollow feeling of emptiness within her soul. And although this girl is fighting a brutal war, war, this girl is learning. This girl is learning to feel, to feel the sadness and allow the tears, to feel the guilt and not be ashamed, to feel the loneliness and embrace the silence of her own company, to feel the anxiety and not run, to feel the pain and not fight, to feel the urges to binge and purge and just let them pass. To erase the need to numb and just feel. This girl is fighting. This girl is fighting to regain the life she once had. To love herself. To love the scars and imperfections she holds beneath the surface of her skin. To love the intricate and beautiful mess that is human life. This happy, confident, carefree girl that you think you see this girl is fighting. How do we not end on that? <laughs> do we not? That was that might have been the biggest stutter of my life. I'm so tempted to go back and erase that, but I'm not. I'm going to leave it in because it's killing me. Because I want to get better. I want to become less of a perfectionist. Oh, you know, if I really wanted to become more comfortable with making mistakes, I should make that as a ringtone and put it on the website. I can't, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Anyway, I hope you heard something tonight that 
brought you some comfort, made you laugh, made you feel something, made you cry, helped you feel less alone, or just made you say, thank God I'm not Paul. Just remember you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.